Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, the new Biden doctrine in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and what it means on this 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. But first joining us is Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms. He normally joins us every Friday, uh, but today we decided to move uh, his segment up. Michael, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be back, Vago. Uh, absolute pleasure. Happy New Year. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Airspace Conference and uh, trade show. Michael, uh, a lot going on tomorrow. Obviously, we're doing our 9-11 show. There is, we're going to be focused on high strategy, uh, and yet there is an enormous amount of activity still going up on the Hill, and we wanted to give you an opportunity, given uh, how many people in our audience depend on your uh, excellent reporting. Uh, talk to us a little bit about where we stand, right? I mean, there's infrastructure. Uh, we're in the midst of a markup, right? House Armed Services Committee has finished uh, their uh, $740 billion measure. We've talked about that. A couple of weeks earlier, the Senate uh, moved on their uh, version of, of defense spending. Uh, you've got the reconciliation, right? W- walk us through where we stand uh, on all of this, given that there is just an enormous amount of activity and a real push by Democratic leaders in the White House to try to get this over the finish line, because these measures, right, the longer they languish, the less popular they become. There is this sense of sort of let's take this opportunity and, and, and get it through. Sure. Uh, you're right. It's, it's fascinating. There is an enormous amount of activity on the Hill. And technically, the House and the Senate are both out of, re- out of session right now. Uh, they don't plan to come back. I think the Senate comes back next week and the House comes back the week of, of the 20th. But they create the self-imposed deadline of September 15th to mark up uh, each, each, of the, each of the committees to mark up their version of this massive $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. And the enormity of this package is you know, be- coming to light more and more a- every day. It, it seems that the Democrats are trying to take every single domestic priority that they can think of and put it in this bill. And it's becoming hard for them to define. Is it uh, an immigration bill? Is it a climate bill? Is it a social welfare bill? Is it a human infrastructure bill? And it's really kind of all of those things. And you know, some of the things they're going to do are important to note because by creating all these new entitlements, this is something that could create pressure on defense spending uh, in the future. I mean, things like you know paid family medical leave, expanded uh, funding for childcare, uh, universal pre-K, uh, expanding the child tax credit, guaranteeing two years of community college, uh, workforce training programs, uh, tax credits to offset elder care, expanding Medicare to cover things like dental, hearing, vision services. These are huge expansions. Uh, the paid me- medical and family, me- the paid family medical leave provision alone is estimated to cost between five hundred billion and six hundred billion dollars, and. We mentioned last week there are disputes between the House and the Senate as to what to do on health care. Do they want to expand Medicare? You know, that's what they want to do in the Senate. On the House, they want to expand and protect uh, the Affordable Care Act. Same fight is going on now on how to do paid family medical leave. So I don't see how they're going to meet the deadline that they've set for themselves. One, to have these bills marked up and, and done ready by the 15th, but also to have them voted on the 27th. Because remember, the, Pelosi struck a deal with the moderates that she would vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package by uh, October, by September 27th. So the progressives have said, well, they're not voting for that one unless they get the vote for the big one. And that date 
is starting to slip. Uh, more and more people are saying, well, I don't see how we're going to get it done by then. And that's going to put Pelosi in a, in a tough spot and, and the moderates in a tough spot. Because I don't believe that they're going to be able to vote on it by the 27th. And if they did vote on just the bipartisan bill, it could possibly fail because the progressives would not support it because they're not getting the vote on their bill. And at the same time, while all this is happening, we mentioned last week that Joe Manchin called for a pause on this right. massive reconciliation package. Now he's kind of he's come out not only in favor of the pause, but he signaled the number that he would support is between a trillion and 1.5 trillion, which is much lower, uh, obviously, than where the Democrats where the Democrats are. And and they don't want to budge. Bernie Sanders says that, that 3.5 trillion is the, is the the bottom, and that. 3.5 trillion number is the result of major, major compromise, uh, are his words. So, right. uh, and the progressives have sent a letter uh, to Manchin saying, you know, a hundred of them signed the letter asking him where he would cut. So uh, I've been saying all along, I think this is a train wreck. I, I don't see that changing. Uh, who knows what the pay fors are going to be? There's so many unsettled items. There's no way they're going to make the timeline that they say they're going to make. One of the things which I do think is interesting about this is, you know, that the progressives are sort of saying that 3.5 is is sort of a, have suggested it's a floor, whereas Nancy Pelosi has actually bounded it. Right? She said it is a ceiling, and we're working it down, sort of opening up the uh, possibility of it uh, being a, a smaller package. Let's go over to defense. And where are we? What are the hot items? What's the discussion going to be focused on as the House and Senate try to reconcile their measures? And how do these other deliberations potentially impact defense? Because we still have a debt ceiling increase, right? I mean, Janet Yellen has reported to Congress now, right? I'm getting sort of to the limit of my ability to borrow. Uh, and, you know, this, you know, we've all seen this play before. Um, it, 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 it can end uh, for decades. It ended without any fanfare. But it also has has ended badly. How do you how do you cross connect all this stuff and what's going on across all three of those? Well, you're right. Right. The, the, the thing that's hanging over all their heads now is uh, funding the government, you know, because we're going to at the end of this month, the government will run out of money. So they have to pass a continuing resolution. Democrats have said that they want to attach the debt ceiling to that. Republicans have said they will not support that. But now, in light of the disaster from the uh, Hurricane Ida that's hit the south and some of the northeast, the Democrats now want to put emergency supplemental spending onto the CR as well, which will put the Republicans in a tough spot. So if they're going to vote against the CR because of the debt limit, they're also voting against uh, much needed hurricane relief for their home districts. So that game of chicken uh, continues. And as I said several weeks ago, talk of a shutdown is starting to percolate out there. So right. we'll have to see. But obviously that would have strong implications for defense. Next, uh, the week of September 20th, uh, the House National Defense Authorization Act will be on the floor. Uh, amendments are starting to come in. So amendment deadline will be sometime next week. Uh, anticipate a lot of amendments. And that we anticipate also the chairman of the Rules Committee, Chairman McGovern, letting a lot of these amendments get voted on and, and uh, debated. So it'll be interesting to see uh, as these amendments come in. But I do expect NDAA to pass off the floor with a strong uh, bipartisan vote. Uh, there's one thing I mentioned before that could affect some Republican votes, and that is this requirement of women uh, having to register for the draft. Uh, some conservatives will have a problem with that. And there's already a disinformation campaign underway. Somebody forwarded me an article this morning written by a right-wing uh, media person that said that the Democrats slipped this into the bill. And I had to remind my, the friend who emailed to me that this was co-sponsored, that amendment, by Mike Waltz, who's a Republican, and many Republicans supported this as well. So right. that, that's going to uh, uh, be an interesting debate. Then uh, the Senate... I said that, as you pointed out, they marked up their National Defense Authorization Act back in July. The floor action on that is probably not expected down until October. 
And the last bill in our world is the Senate Defense Appropriations Bill. That markup now appears to be at the end of September that they'll mark up that bill. Now, the question is, will the Senate be able to pass any of the bills off the floor or will these bills go straight to conference? Because the defense bill, defense appropriations bill in the House will, does not have the votes to pass on the floor um, for a variety of reasons, but one of which especially is it's $25 billion less than whether Republicans want it. Republicans won't give it any votes and the Democrats can't pass with just their votes because the progressives will vote against defense regardless of what the number is. What do you think are going to be the most contentious items between the House and the Senate this, at this point, right? Or are we going to see actually a lot more agreement? Because this has turned the whole equation on its tail, right? A lot of folks, including in the Democratic caucus, were expecting to see a much smaller defense measure. In, in, in fact, uh, your, your good friend, Adam Smith, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, was, was suggesting that, hey, look, we're spending a lot of money. Let's make some of these trade-offs. Let's dial back on legacy capabilities to free investment over. And instead, we, we just had more money uh, and so much more money that actually there's a lot of legacy capabilities that's, that are moving ahead, F-18 being uh, one of them. Um, wh what do you think is going to be a contentious uh, element of this, or, or do you expect this to actually be one of the easier um, conferences? I, I think this is one of the easier conferences, right? And I think that we already see a shift in the terminology coming out of the administration Instead of using the words legacy, we see Secretary Austin and General Milley using the words relevant, right? Because there are right. a lot of systems that people consider legacy that we still need, we still have a role for. So are they relevant in what we consider to be our, our, our future right. fights? So I think that is going to be a lot of the argument. I think that um, we look, we haven't seen the Senate NDAA yet because uh, that's always you know, uh, closed until they file the bill, but I don't anticipate a tough uh, conference on authorization. There don't seem to be major policy uh, issues that will upset either either side, um, unless there's a surprise in the Senate bill or something happens to slip in uh, through a floor amendment. And you know, the the again, the money issue between the appropriators, I think that will be resolved at a much higher pay grade. That leadership's going to have to come together and say, in order for us to keep the government funded and get appropriations bills passed, we're going to agree to an extra $25 billion in defense spending. And that's not so hard. I mean, they agreed to $61 billion more in the labor HHS bill, which is a much, much smaller bill, you know, by comparison. And, right. you know, as we pointed out previously, you know, we've already spent $6 trillion in COVID relief. Now we're looking at spending, you know, another three and a half trillion dollars on a major reconciliation package, not to mention a trillion dollars on bipartisan infrastructure. So what's $25 billion at the end of the day? I don't think it's going to be hard for them to, to, to come together, and especially with the strong bipartisan vote, the amendments right. got in both the House and the Senate to increase defense spending. It really wasn't much uh, of a fight. Ever Dirksen really is spinning in his grave, right? It, it, it was a billion here, a billion there, and eventually you're talking real money. And now it's a trillion here, a trillion there, and you're talking real money. It's really crazy. Exactly. I mean, it's been 20 years since 9-11. Um, and I wanted to get your sense. And one of the topics we're going to be talking about tomorrow with our panel uh, from a geostrategic nature, but I wanted to get your sense also from a congressional standpoint and from a Washington standpoint. Uh, your uh, lovely wife was uh, on duty in the Capitol working uh, in the, at the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, on 9-11, um, you know, the, the, the building uh, where your in-laws were taking care of your five-month-old shook when the airplane uh, hit the Pentagon. You actually watched the airplanes flying into the uh, side of the building and you told your wife, you know, get out of the office, uh, get, get home, because this is not going to be limited uh, to uh, just those buildings. At, at the end of the day, Michael, what is it you think we got right in this 20-year war what did we get wrong in this 20-year war? How did Congress change? And then ultimately, what do you think the most important lessons of the past 20 years have been? 
as as the nation seeks to remember, regear, and actually face, um, you know, mind this threat, but also address new ones. Well, all right, that's a lot to un- un- unwind there. But I would say, look, I-, I think one of the things we got right, uh, at least in the beginning, was, you know, the country came together in a sense of crisis to um, resolve this crisis. You know, we saw the embrace between Tom Daschle and George uh, W. Bush you know, on the floor of the Senate after he addressed, you know, the Senate, that Republicans and Democrats were united in, you know, punishing those that, uh, that inflicted this damage on us and doing everything they could together to try and prevent it from happening again. Um, and, you know, I think that still defense is that last bastion of bipartisanship to this day on Capitol Hill, where we've seen a breakdown uh, across the rest of uh, the Capitol and, and the partisanship that's only increased, that we haven't seen that as much in the defense space. And I think that's part of the reason uh, why. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, I think that we got wrong, obviously, was you know, look, I worked in the Pentagon during the first Gulf War, and I it was very interesting to, to see, I mean, that when this was over, how George H.W. Bush had said during one of his speeches off the cuff, wow, you know, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome, right? Because we were, we were so scared of interaction, you know, our, our, our conflict because of our, we got mired down in Vietnam. And at that time, that was America's, you know, longest war. But when Bush, you know, committed us to this, it was very hard. He got a Democratic, you know, Congress to go along with him. Democrats controlled the House and the Senate when Bush was president. And it was very difficult for him to do. And, but he had clear objectives. He had the international community behind him. And we achieved those objectives. And then we were done. And I think one of the things we got wrong here is, one, I don't think we had clear objectives as to what victory was in Afghanistan and the same in Iraq. And that, you know, conflict has to be our last resort. We have to figure out everything we can do first to avoid conflict. But if we're going to get involved in the conflict, we need to use overwhelming force to win it. And that's what we did in the first Gulf War. We used 500,000 troops. And the second time we went into Iraq, there was a big debate as to how many people were going to use. At one point, it was discussed of using 50,000 troops. Well, big difference between pushing Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait versus occupying an entire country. And I think at the time, unfortunately, you know, I think Congress and they should trust their commander in chief went along with all these conflicts without asking a lot of questions. And I think now we see Congress knows and is asking, you know, a lot more questions. And I think we're going to see, you know, we see a lot more uh, oversight uh, and Congress wants a lot more oversight now before deploying troops and before uh, getting engaged in any type of uh, any type of conflict. We've seen changes in the structure on Capitol Hill. There's a new committee on Homeland Security, an authorizing committee, and there's a, an appropriations committee now for Homeland Security, which we would not have seen, you know, but for 9-11. And, you know, there's more push from both parties, Democrats and Republicans, to try and get combat veterans uh, to run for office. So you see a lot more uh, veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan now in Congress, both on the Republican side and on the Democratic side, which, you know, we would not have seen, uh, but, but, for the, but for the conflict. And, you know, I think... Prior to 9-11, there was always talk of counterterrorism and combating terrorism, but it was really always lip service. There was really not a lot of, of substance behind it. And now uh, it's a big part of the conversation. It will always be part of the conversation now. Not only you know, combating counter-ter- you know, counterterrorism operations overseas, but what can we do to secure our borders, secure our airports? That was something that was never really talked about before. And if I had brought something to Capitol Hill that was a great border security device or an uh, airport security device, uh, prior to 9-11, nobody, they would have yawned and sent me on my way. Michael, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure uh, having you on. Uh, hope you uh, have a great weekend and a great week. Looking forward to having you back on. Uh, and I know that uh, you you and the family will, will certainly be thinking, as everybody uh, was that day, uh, just remembering uh, 
not just the extraordinary events, but all, all the lives uh, that were lost and, and affected in the, in the 20 years since. Thanks so much again. Thank you. And a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And now joining us is Lisa Curtis, the director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Before joining CNAS, she served for four years on President Trump's National Security Council as the senior director for South and Central Asia, where she, among other things, worked Afghanistan issues, uh, now obviously focused on the Indo-Pacific. Lisa, thanks so very much for joining us, especially uh, after such a busy day. Well, thank you for having me. I want to ask, uh, while President uh, Biden has drawn criticism, uh, certainly for how the Afghanistan withdrawal unfolded, Fans of Realpolitik have been heartened by his address uh, that framed a Biden doctrine driven by core uh, strategic national interests, focusing more on China uh, and deterring uh, uh, both uh, Beijing as well as Moscow, fighting the global war on terrorism without large uh, deployments of troops and ending forever wars and nation building, uh, which uh, has something that has been a subject of intense debate, certainly over the past several decades, uh, going back to the Balkans uh, in Washington, DC. You served in the Bush administration, uh, working South Asia issues uh, when 9-11 happened, and you've seen each president whether you were working for them or observing them and studying them and helping influence policy, delineate their own doctrines, whether it was a Bush doctrine, Obama doctrine, a Trump doctrine, and now a Biden doctrine. Is Biden on the right track in making this shift? Biden is on the right track in sticking to what he calls achievable objectives and getting away from uh, this idea of deploying large numbers of troops to try to, you know, do wholesale change to governments uh, in other countries. So he is on the right track. I think he's responding to the American public and its exhaustion with these uh, foreign wars. Uh, But at the same time, uh, he has to recognize that we will likely still face a very dangerous terrorist threat in Afghanistan. And I think this uh, 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks is particularly somber because the Taliban has retaken power in the country from which al-Qaeda launched its war against the United States so many years ago. And the war really ended, the mission ended in the worst imaginable way possible. Uh, It was a poorly planned and executed withdrawal and it saw the Taliban immediately roar back to power And even uh, we found out this week with the announcement of the interim government put into place Al-Qaeda-linked terrorists in government positions. Uh, So this is is really a a terrible end to the, the Afghanistan mission, even though I think his instincts are correct for, um, you know, not having large number of troops on the ground. I I hope that he recognizes that we still have to deal with the terrorist threat. We may have to continue over the horizon operations uh, to deal with these these vital threats to US national security. So so as long as he recognizes that, that the war on terrorism really is not over, uh, we're just shifting the way that we're gonna deal with the threat. And, And I think that is the overall right direction for the country. Uh, let me let me ask you. I mean, there are those who who make the case that this was going to end badly 
no matter how we did it, uh, French friends of mine said, hey, look, we, we decided to pull out because we knew this train was going to hop the tracks, uh, ultimately. Uh, and, and France did move somewhat more proactively and was criticized at the time that it started uh, removing its troops while almost every other nation maintained it. Their right, Ashraf Ghani had asked us, hey, don't precipitate a massive um, a challenge. I mean, there's this uh, the sense a lot of folks had that the Taliban were eventually going to take control of the country. How do you how do you respond to that as somebody who was studying it, certainly from the inside? Well, I think it could have been handled a lot better. Look, uh, the first problem was the very weak and poorly negotiated Doha agreement with the Taliban. Uh, there were too many concessions given to the Taliban. We undermined the Afghan government. Uh, essentially, the U.S. negotiator was providing international legitimacy to the Taliban as they were pursuing a military path to power and forcing the Afghan government to release 5,000 of the most hardened Taliban prisoners before the Taliban even agreed to sit down with the Afghan government was a wrong-headed approach. That was the first problem. But second, the Biden administration had an opportunity to either withdraw from that agreement or adjust it. And Biden chose to stick with it. And so that, that was a mistake. And then the third mistake was how abrupt the withdrawal was. Not only did the United States pull its forces out within a very short period of time, it also withdrew 16,000 contractors all at once from the country. So we, we really uh, handled the withdrawal process uh, badly. And even if you know Biden was committed to getting U.S. troops out, he could have done it in a more deliberate slower way. And he didn't need to keep to this Doha agreement. It was essentially handing the country to the Taliban like a birthday cake. And so moving forward, I think it's important for the United States to shift our diplomatic focus to working with like-minded democratic partners. This is the UK, Europe, India, and you know, have a principled position on human rights, women's rights, and also uh, devise a very uh, careful and precise military strategy to deal with any re-emerging terrorist threats. We can't just wish away the Taliban's continued support for terrorism. We, we have seen that they were not interested in a negotiated settlement. They've put into place hardliners, including Haqqani network leaders. This is a uh, foreign terrorist organization uh, who's now, you know, helping to run the Taliban government. So we've not seen a fundamental change in the Taliban, and we shouldn't pretend like we have. So hopefully moving forward, the Biden administration will judge the Taliban on their actions, not just their words, and will withhold any kind of recognition of the Taliban until we see clear signs, concrete action against terrorism and action to support uh, women's rights and human rights. Just briefly, did, did you, I mean, the administration didn't think the collapse would happen this fast. You studied this and really had a front row seat in this. Did you think the collapse would happen that fast? Because I think the administration, the chaotic nature of it was nobody expected the collapse to happen as fast as it did. There was an expectation that the Afghans could hold out and we would have several months to withdraw our folks. Did, did the speed of the collapse surprise you? 
Absolutely. And I could tell you no one expected uh, the rapidity uh, of the Taliban ability to take over the country. This was a complete surprise for everyone. Um, even the Taliban, I think, were surprised at, at how quickly things folded. So, you know, I think it, it, it uh, was shocking. But anybody who tries to tell you that you know, they knew it was going to happen that quickly. I, I would be very skeptical because, um, you know, like you said, I've, I've been studying uh, this country, you know, for 20 years and I thought it would take, you know, at least six months to a year. Um, never in my wildest dreams did I think it would be a matter of weeks. Um, so I think this it, this was surprising, and uh, it's it's something that you know we're we're all grappling with, and there there will be books written, there'll be you know reports, debates about this. Um, but I can assure you that uh, I didn't know anybody when I served in the government uh, who ever thought that the this could happen this quickly. Um, and and certainly the administration is saying. Uh, that, you know, right, they're being very careful in talking about how we, uh, they're going to deal with the Taliban, uh, certainly, and and you're right, right, I mean, I should just note for the record, you were one of the people who was working in the Trump administration, making a case that we should actually stay there longer and maintain uh, a residual presence uh, for uh, a lot longer, right, I mean, at, at the time, Zalmay Khalilazad was doing all of this stuff, the Taliban smelled it on the United States that, look, I mean, you know, the old expression, we have all the clocks, they have all the time. They knew we were bum rushing for uh, the exits and and ultimately they were biding their time uh, in in order um, uh, in before they took over. Let me let me take you to the question of the past two decades. Um, what have we gotten right from your standpoint? What have we gotten wrong? And what are the lessons as the United States commemorates the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks? Well, first, I think it was right for the U.S. to go into Afghanistan in 2001 and overturn the Taliban regime. The Taliban clearly uh, had you know, facilitated al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda had found safe haven in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. And we shouldn't forget, we gave the Taliban an opportunity to turn over Osama bin Laden to the United States, and they refused. So I think it was the right decision to go in there. Where I think we went wrong was um, first in, in getting distracted by the Iraq war. Um, you remember the, the uh, faulty intelligence where uh, a lot of the Bush administration was trying to connect Iraq to the Al-Qaeda attacks. And it, it turned out to, to, to not be there. The connections were not there. So this really took our attention away from Afghanistan uh, early on in the war. Um, and then in the additional years, I think we overstretched. We tried to do too much and we didn't keep focused on the, the goal at hand, uh, protecting our counterterrorism interests. And I think that, that was a mistake. Um, now, I think the Obama administration uh, started off, you know, with a policy of um, wanting to begin a withdrawal process. Um, Obama, you know, recognized that the U.S. public was becoming exhausted uh, with this war. But I think his mistake was at the same time he announced a surge in U.S. troops, 
he announced when those troops would be withdrawn. So again, the Taliban knew they just had to wait us out. So I think every administration, the last four administrations have made mistakes in this war. And where we are now, I, I think you know each administration uh, shares partial blame for the, the failure of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. And it's going to be hard to move on from this, but I think you know the Biden administration must show that it's going to work with allies and partners on the way ahead, preventing a humanitarian catastrophe and making sure that terrorists don't rebuild their safe haven there. Do you, uh, let me ask you uh, one uh, last question, which is, do you believe that this is a new Taliban? Because it's pretty clear that from a senior leadership standpoint, when you talk to folks, there is this sort of, that the senior most people understand that they have to do it differently this time. They need international aid. They know they have to moderate, as, as several of them have put it. You know, we can be like Pakistan, a Sharia-based state, but not as extreme. Whereas the rank and file are actually uh, not necessarily on that uh, same page. And in fact, you can see the strains within the Taliban. Do you think that this is a different Taliban and that they will prevent terrorist groups from operating from their soil as they've said that they will, you know, they, they've said that they want to prevent terrorist groups from doing it, right? I mean, I don't think they want to necessarily get hit in the head with a hammer. Uh, and I think they want international aid. But do you think that they're different at all? I'm very skeptical, you know, and I, I say this having sat in probably half the meetings that Ambassador Khalilzad held with Taliban. I was I was there for those negotiations. And I think, you know, number one, they they achieved so much out of those talks that I think that emboldened them. And they were able to take over the country with such ease. I think it even surprised them how how easily it was to to walk into Kabul. So the hardliners are bolstered. And we see that in the naming of the interim government. Look, they appointed a hardline prime minister, uh, somebody you know from the old school who served as foreign minister and deputy prime minister during Taliban rule in the 1990s. Um, as I said before, they appointed Sirajuddin Haqqani, the leader of the Haqqani network, uh, the, the group that is a subject of an FBI rewards for justice program because of his role in terrorist attacks that killed U.S. citizens. Uh, so I, I don't see that this is a more friendly, more moderate Taliban. I think they said the right things at the beginning, but I think we, we need to be very cautious. We need to see what they do on the ground. And frankly, the, the naming of the interim government is not encouraging. And uh, I think that that this is one, you know, the first sign that we need to exercise extreme caution. And even though in our rational minds we say, well, of course, you know, why would they want to let another uh, terrorist attack originate, you know, under their rule? That's our logic. Um, I think from their standpoint, their allies with Al Qaeda, their their allies with other terrorist groups, they're not going to want to crack down on these groups. They, you know, they're partially where they are because of the support they've received from groups like Al-Qaeda and the Haqqani Network. So I, for one, am very skeptical that we're seeing a completely new and changed Taliban. 
We've got about 30 seconds left. Do you think carrots and sticks can bring them around where they don't necessarily, not just external carrots and sticks, right? But we have seen uh, demonstrations and certainly pressures in Afghanistan where, um, you know, Afghans necessarily uh, are pushing back against them. Do you think the combination of these factors drives uh, them to at least exercise some more governance and control of these terror groups? Or does the country at some point catapult into another civil war because of it? I think we have to try to shape their behavior. And the best way we do that is by working closely with our European, UK, and other like-minded partners. Uh, You're certainly not going to get Russia and China to stand up for women's rights and human rights. Um, But we we do have like-minded partners who care about uh, care about these kinds of things, and also like-minded partners who care about counterterrorism. So I think by working closely with a coalition of like-minded, we can try to shape the Taliban's uh, future policies, because as you say, they, they do need access to international finance, to aid. They're not going to be able to get everything they need from the Chinese. So we do have an opportunity to try to shape uh, shape their behavior moving forward. I just think we need to keep our expectations tempered. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on the program and looking forward to having you uh, back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.